If you have a copy of God's Word, as you make your way back to your seat, uh, open it up to Titus. If your Bible's like mine, it's all on one thing. You don't have to turn any pages. Uh, we have two things in the back. One is a scripture journal. If you've not gotten a scripture journal, I'd invite you to go take one of those. It's our gift to you as we walk through the book of Titus. Uh, but we also have some copies of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, don't have a Bible with you today, that's our gift to you. We'd love to ha- uh, for you to have a copy of God's Word that you can read and take home. We have been in a series on Titus. We took a little sidebar to talk about elders in the New Testament. We're making our way back this week uh, to finish up Titus chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 9 to 16. Titus 1 verses 9 to 16. So let me read God's word and let's ask God to speak to us this morning. Titus chapter 1 starting in verse 9 says this, talking about the elders, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceitful, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. God, would you take this passage and speak to our hearts this morning. Show us the need for sound doctrine, for gospel health, And I pray that you would help us to run after that as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, health is at the forefront of our minds. It has been for uh, a year and a half. I mean, for some of us, it's been at the forefront of our minds for longer than that. Uh, But especially since COVID started in March of 2020, health has been at the forefront of whether you want it to be or not, of our decision-making, of our patterns and rhythms of school and work and friendships of church. Health has been at the forefront of our lives. But something I think we can't seem to get a consensus on is what does it mean to be healthy? Uh, We knew enough at the beginning in March of 2020 that, okay, we need to stop seeing each other. Or maybe we didn't know enough (laughs) to say we need to stop seeing each other because there's so much risk. We we don't want to risk spreading this sickness that we don't know anything about. But as time went on, we learned that health was not just physical, right? Do you remember reading the statistics of 2020 and the mental health that happened in 2020? The, The challenges, the depression, the anxiety, the suicide rates, so what, what does it mean to be healthy? I don't think we have a really good consensus on that. We know that for some, it's just as simple as not getting COVID. For others, it means losing weight. For others, it means exercising, maybe trying to look good. Many people have started talking about mental health or emotional health. Maybe you come to church and you hear about spiritual health. What does it mean to be healthy? And in Titus chapter 1, There's a word that Paul uses in verse 9 when he talks about sound doctrine. And this word for sound, if your Bible's like mine, it's got a little note at the bottom. It says, or you could use the word healthy. This is a medical term 
Sound, the Greek word sounds like our word for hygiene. And he's saying healthy doctrine. So what does it mean to be healthy? And then what does it mean to be healthy in the church? See, Paul felt like he needed to cast a vision for being healthy in the church, being healthy spiritually, being healthy according to our doctrine and how healthy leaders protect healthy churches by promoting healthy doctrine. That's the main idea of this text and of the sermon this morning is that healthy leaders protect healthy churches by promoting healthy doctrine. So our first question this morning, our first point, what does it mean to be healthy? Verse nine, you see that word sound? That's the word for healthy. But how do healthy church leaders promote health in God's church? Let's look at verse nine. He says that they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Well, hold firm or hold fast speaks to the unwavering adherence, the settled and seasoned dedication. But dedication to what? Adherence to, commitment to what? Hold firm to the trustworthy word as it was taught. Well, the trustworthy word as taught is another way of Paul saying the gospel message that was witnessed by the apostles and passed down to the churches they started and the leaders they established. That's why the apostles played such a crucial role in the book of Acts because they were eyewitnesses of what Jesus did. And then they were eyewitnesses of his crucifixion, eyewitnesses of him after he was raised from the dead. And then their mission was to go be a witness and to establish churches that they could pass on through their testimony. This is what Christ really did. This is who he really was. And this is how it changes your life. And so they started churches on that foundation. L look with me at Jude verse three. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all, that was once for all delivered to the saints. He talks about the faith, the word, this word of the gospel, this doctrine of faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, is a very well-known passage where Paul summarizes gospel truth. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he's saying, I'm passing on to you this trustworthy word. What is it that he's passing on that he received? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Why are church leaders, why are elders called to hold fast, to hold firm to this gospel word? Why? Well, verse nine tells us, it says, so that, for this purpose, so that, they may be able to give instruction in sound or healthy doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. They've got to hold fast to the gospel so that they can instruct their churches in spiritual health. Church leaders have got to hold firm to the gospel so that we can instruct our churches in that same gospel, so that we can protect our churches from anything that would add or take away from that gospel. So what does it mean to be healthy? Well, as we are, have already started to learn in Titus and as we'll continue to see, doctrine is not just a mental exercise. But doctrine includes both belief and behavior. Words and works. So when he's saying you've got to hold fast to the gospel, 
as a elder, as a pastor, you've got to hold firm to the gospel, this word that I gave to you, so that you can instruct or encourage or challenge or teach your church healthy belief and healthy behavior. That's the kind of health that we're looking for as a church family. Healthy belief, but not stopping there. Also healthy behavior, but not just healthy behavior that's ungrounded. Healthy behavior that's grounded in the right kind of belief. And he's actually saying that the only way for pastors and elders to pass this on to their churches is if they personally, not just in their teaching, but them personally, if they're holding on to the gospel. But you know, doctrine is belief and behavior, words and works. I want you to listen to two preachers who've lived in the last hundred years define preaching, okay? And you say, what does this mean for me? Preaching where we talk about the word. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, okay? Pastored in the early 1900s, mid-1900s. Fantastic preacher. Pastored in the heart of London. He said, preaching is theology coming through a man on fire. So you have... On the one hand, belief. You have theology. But on the other hand, you have the behavior of the one preaching. It's, it can't be dry and dead. It's God we're talking about. This is God that we're talking about here. And you have Robert Smith, uh, one of the greatest living African-American preachers, teaches at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham. He's got a wonderful book um, that I'm actually reading right now, and the book is called Doctrine that dances. And he talks about, you can't just lay out facts for people. when, When you understand true gospel doctrine, it pulls you into its rhythm in such a way that you begin the dance of the true doctrine, and it affects your behavior and your rhythms of life. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So faithful pastors and elders promote health within the church by themselves holding fast, holding firm to the gospel, both personally and in their teaching. But he gives another reason, right? We've got to hold firm to this gospel so that we can protect against things that are a threat to our gospel health. We have to protect against sicknesses. So that, that's the second thing we're going to look at this morning. We, we need to watch out for sickness. When we ask, what does it mean to be healthy? And we say, gospel health is both, both belief and behavior. So w- what could be a threat to that? We need to watch out for anything that's a threat. We need to watch out for sicknesses. Now, in Titus 1, we see some of the sicknesses, some of the threats to their health, and he talks about false teaching. And we don't have the full picture of what the false teaching was in Crete or in these churches among these believers, but we get hints of it, okay? Here's what we do know. It was those of the circumcision party, so Jewish or Jewish-influenced people, and they were upsetting whole families because of the way they taught for shameful gain and what they taught. They were teaching what they ought not to teach. Now, it's probably similar to what the rest of the New Testament talks about when it talks about false teaching, specifically as it relates to Jewish people and Christian people coming together. The New Testament talks about this all over. The book of Galatians is about this specific thing. There was a challenge for Jewish Christians 
adopting Christ as their savior because they often wanted to bring customs and rules and laws to bear on their new Christian faith. And then non-Jewish believers said, why should I take that? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a convert to Judaism, I'm a convert to Christianity. So there was always this tension in the churches. And so we can assume it's, it's probably along those lines, even if we don't know the exact uh, way it fleshed out here in Crete. But you may say, okay, what in the world does that have to do with us? We probably are not tempted to bring Jewish first century customs to our Christian faith. Probably not. But the principle, I think, holds true throughout all the ages. That even if we're not tempted to bring Jewish customs or Jewish laws or add anything else like that to the gospel, the principle is that we're always tempted to add something to the gospel, aren't we? In the first century, it was Jewish laws and customs. But what is it today? What are the things we're tempted to add to the gospel today? What are the rules that you add on to the good news of Jesus. The things you think I must be, fill in the blank. If Christ is gonna really approve of me, I've got to have this under control. Or I've gotta accomplish this long list of things if I'm really gonna be at peace with myself. If God's really gonna be accepting of me, then I have to, These are things that we're adding on to the gospel. Rules, customs, cultural norms, political affiliations. We cannot add anything to the gospel. A.W. Tozer has a quote where he talks about the most important thing about somebody is what they think about God or what they don't think when they think of God. I want to ask you this morning, when you think of God, what do you think of? When you think of the gospel, what do you think of? Is it only this and what you find here or are there things that you add on to it because there's ways you've learned to live, ways you've learned to cope with life, things that we've called in the past flesh, strategies for living independent of Jesus. There's ways you've learned to live and then you've brought those ways to bear on the gospel that you have come to believe. And so the gospel is a message of free grace, free righteousness. You did not earn it. You cannot lose it. So why do we live as if we did earn it with a sense of pride or live in fear of losing what God has given us? Or or we live in constant fear that we're guilty before God and we're in shame, wondering, oh, I've I've let him down. I've got to do something. Okay, this day's shot. I'm going to do my best to earn up some righteousness so tomorrow I can start fresh and I'm going to wake up earlier tomorrow so I can really make sure I spend time in the word and in prayer. Why, why do we live like that? Because we've learned to live. We have learned that, hey, I've got to do certain things to be accepted by people. I've got to do certain things to be accepted by my spouse or my family. Or, I've, or you have an internal sense of not wanting to fail anyone. Or you have an identity to maintain of the one who gets stuff done. And now you've brought that same identity to bear on this whole idea of being a spiritual person. So your spiritual identity is not one who is loved by Jesus, but it's one who does a lot of things for Jesus. Don't add things to the gospel. It might seem like a minor thing, but done over a lifetime, it will be detrimental to your walk with God. When we watch out for sickness in the church, for things that we're tempted to add to the gospel, we need to test our teaching. We need to test our beliefs. And I think scripture gives us a couple of ways. One, we need to be Bereans. Say, what in the world is up, Berean? Acts 17, verse 11. 
Here's what God's word says. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, talking about the Jews in Berea. They received the word from Paul, actually, received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So can we be like these early Berean Christians in Acts 17? That when we hear teaching, or even when we sense something in our own hearts rising up, we constantly go, wait a minute, do I find this in the book? I mean, let's be a people of the book. If we stand up and preach something and you go, wait, I don't see that in here. Why are we acting like this is authoritative God? We ought not to accept it. So one way we test our teaching, one way we watch out for our sickness is that we test everything according to scripture, just like the Bereans in Acts 17. But the other way is we look at the history of the faith. I've heard some people say, if it's new, it isn't true. And if it's true, it isn't new. I think there's some truth to that statement, but I don't really want like a fresh new Christian belief. I want the old, old ancient faith that has stood the test of time for people over all the continents and over thousands of years. You know, our Christian brothers and sisters, the church fathers and mothers that have gone before us, you know, they dealt with false teaching. They did. They dealt with all sorts of false teaching within the church. Every heretic has a Bible verse. So they would deal with heresy, they would deal with false teaching in the church, and we can be comforted that for almost 2,000 years, the church and scripture has stood the test of time. We can go back and read in the tradition of the faith and see how did they handle these things? How did they handle threats from the gospel politically and culturally? You know, we're not the first Christians to live in a culture that thinks our political system is a threat to us. Did you know that? Augustine wrote a really long book called The City of God. And Augustine lived in the 400s. This isn't new. Let's go to the history of the faith and be encouraged that believers have stood the test of time over and over. And many times they have wrestled with the very things we're wrestling with today. In the early struggles, they met together and called these councils. And then from these councils, they wrote creeds together to defend their faith. Things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And the church actually grew stronger as they had to defend from false teaching. Did you know the church grew stronger as they were forced to defend the teaching that they held to be true and biblical? And so they would write these creeds. And creed is from a Latin word, credo, which just means I believe, the faith. I believe and they would have to articulate what are their beliefs. So church history isn't authoritative, but it is a very helpful guide to ensure that we're not out of bounds as we wrestle with Christian belief today. So as we watch out for sickness, let's make sure we're not adding to the gospel. Let's make sure we're testing everything according to scripture. And let's use the beneficial work of those saints that have gone before us that have wrestled with many things. We don't have to reinvent the Christian wheel. People have been where we are. Let's use that to our advantage. We need to watch out for sickness. But the other thing we need to watch out for that Paul talks about here in Titus 1, we need to watch out for bad doctors, right? We need to watch out for bad doctors. So he's not just condemning the teaching and not condemning the people. He's actually saying there's two problems. They're teaching things that are wrong, but look at them. They are wrong. These people that are doing the teaching are wrong. Look at the way in this one passage, just a few verses, look at the way they're described. Insubordinate, 
empty talkers, deceivers, devoting themselves to Jewish myths. They're motivated by shameful gain. They are people who have turned away from truth. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, professing to know God, denying it by their works, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good works. Paul's not saying, hey, these are, they're really great guys that have just gone off track a little bit. That is not at all what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, first of all, let's deal with the content of what they're teaching. Wrong. Now, let's come over here and let's look at their lifestyle. Wrong. I mean, he's very open about, look at the fruit of these people's lives. We ought not to follow them for that very reason. And as I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about this illustration of health working through this passage, bad doctors. Matthew 7, 15 to 20 came to mind in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Interesting how he starts to use disease and healthy even here. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Isn't that, I mean, it's almost like Paul used these verses to write Titus 1. Because Jesus uses the language of healthy and diseased, and then Paul comes over and uses another word that means healthy. And then how does Paul say we're going to understand these false teachers? Not just by their teaching, but by the fruits of their life, that they are detestable, they're liars, they're disobedient. Bad roots cannot produce good fruit. We can never tolerate someone with bad character and what we think is good teaching. Because doctrine is not just words and not just belief, it is also works and behavior. And so if you have someone that is disqualified, we might say, according to the earlier part of Titus 1, someone who has bad character, someone who's sinful, someone who is described like these are in the second half of Titus 1, they don't have good doctrine. I don't care what their words are that come out of their mouth. Titus 1 says they don't have good doctrine because doctrine is belief and behavior. And bad roots cannot produce good fruit. So if someone has not been made pure by the gospel of Jesus down to their core, then they're not producing gospel fruit. It doesn't matter what it looks like on the surface. This is why he has this saying here at the end that says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and consciences are defiled. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. If you're defiled to your core and you've not been cleansed by the gospel of Jesus, nothing, not your teaching, not your words, is going to be pure. Not the fruit of your life. It's not going to be pure. But to the pure, if you've, you've got to be changed, you have to personally hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So that you're purified from the inside, which we're going to talk about. Two and Titus three, being cleansed from the inside out by the work of Jesus. We've got to watch out for bad doctors, and we do that not just by looking at their teaching, but looking at their lives. 
We ought to demand that leaders, especially elders and pastors in the church, live lives in accordance with the gospel they're preaching. This doesn't mean perfection. It means they're present to the process of what Jesus is doing in their life. We don't hold perfection as a standard because there's one who's perfect, the chief shepherd. All under shepherds, though, ought to be present to the process of what Christ is doing in their lives. But the challenge for us humans is that we have an incredible ability to manipulate our exterior. We are masters of disguise. Now, I'm not just talking physically, right? Even physical health. You can mask physical health, right? We're not always as healthy as we seem. We're not always as unhealthy as we seem. But uh, my late grandfather, all, as long as I knew him, had this belly. Now, he wasn't big anywhere, but he had a belly, and he was always quick to remind us. Doctor always says, this is just air. This is just gas. I mean, this is not a, a, a big, jiggly, you know, I'm not fat here. This is just air. I mean, I'm healthy. You know, I'm strong. I get out and work, and I'm strong. We're not always as unhealthy as we seem either, but we're also not always as healthy as we seem. We are masters of covering up a lot about who we are on the inside. Aren't we? We, we don't like to disclose everything that's going on in our hearts and our minds, and it's not just true about bodies. We can say the right words and pretend to do the right things, and yet our hearts may still be far from Christ. Go read the prophets in the Old Testament. For this people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You can say the right things. You can show up here. You can do the right things. You can write a check and drop it in the basket each week or give online or through our app or text. You can show up to growth group. You can own one of these. You can mark one of these up. You can do all the right things, but the state of your heart may still lie uncovered to all of us. I don't know. I don't know your heart. Christ knows your heart. Jesus knows your heart. We can manipulate the exterior, but you can't manipulate it to Jesus. When Paul continues in this passage to quote this Cretan prophet, people think it's Epimenides who lived four or five hundred years before Christ. But no matter who people think it was, it was a hundred percent. Everybody believes somebody in Crete said this saying, all Cretans are liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. What a condemning statement. You go, Paul, what's your point? You know, there's believers who are Cretans, so are you saying that the church is just liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons? No, no. He's talking about the false teachers. And I read one commentator say that Paul's essentially saying, how very Cretan of these false teachers. These false teachers are acting more like a Cretan than they are like Christ. We've got to be weary of teachers and leaders that look more like our culture than they do like Christ. We could spend more time trying to be cool and be an influencer and say the right things and like the right things and wear the right things. We could spend more time trying to do that than we spend trying to know our God. I think Paul's warning with that text is be weary of teachers who look more cultural and are more concerned with being relevant than they are with being Christ-like. How very Cretan of these false teachers. It's very obvious that they would rather be like a Cretan than they'd like to be like Christ. 
I think the point of watching out for bad doctors is this. The character of a leader is just as potent as their teaching. A leader's character is just as potent as their teaching. The example they set, the way they live their lives, you'll know them by their fruits is what Jesus says. So how do we respond to unhealth? How do you respond to unhealth? If you're sick, what do you do? Pray it's not COVID and you have to quarantine. If you're sick, what do you do? Or what if you go to a bad doctor and get really bad medical advice? Al could have more stories than me on going to doctors and having procedures done and some going better than others and others you don't know to be discouraged until years later and there's some effects and you go, maybe he shouldn't have done that or maybe he shouldn't have told me to do that. But what do you do when you go to a bad doctor? What if it's even more, what if, this, what if the sickness is life-threatening and you uncover a sickness in your own body that is life-threatening or someone you love and they're sick in a life-threatening way? And then what if the doctor puts you or your family in danger because of their bad advice, their bad medical direction? What do you do? How should we handle this in the church when there's a threat to our gospel health? When there's something that's threatening to compromise our gospel health in the church, what should we do? Paul gives us some instruction. Rebuke those who contradict it. He says in verse 11, they must be silenced. And then in verse 13, he uses the word rebuke again. Now, any of you enjoy confrontation and challenge? I do not. I don't, I don't enjoy it. I don't think you enjoy it. I don't enjoy doing it. I don't enjoy receiving it. I don't enjoy being a part of it. Let's be friends and keep going. I think I maybe put on a good front like I would like it, but I really don't. Because it's challenging. It, to be confronted is challenging. Or it might be more challenging to confront somebody else and see something that you know they don't see and need to tell them. That's really hard. It takes a massive amount of love, a massive amount of vulnerability to go and tell somebody that. But in Scripture, challenge, confrontation, rebuke, or it might use the word refute, tell them they're wrong, Whenever this comes from God in scripture, it is always with the aim of restoration. Praise God. He never rebukes you to cut you off. If you are breathing, God has chosen not to cut you off yet. Because any sort of rebuke in scripture always comes exactly like what it says here in verse 13. Rebuke them sharply. Boy, that's harsh. That church is pretty rude. Well, they're just so dogmatic about what they believe. Now, have any room for people who might believe something different? They're just, they're so sharp and pointed and brutish in the way that they tell people. That's not what we believe. But we've got to finish the verse. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke somebody with the intention that they would be restored to gospel health themselves. Rebuke these bad doctors. Rebuke this sick teaching so that it could be restored to the reality of good gospel health. That's great news. You know, Paul got rebuked by Jesus on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts. And that wasn't to cut off Paul or to condemn Paul or tell Paul he's guilty and he better flee. It was to redeem Paul and call Paul to be one of the greatest church planners the world's ever known. 
when I was listening to some sermons on this passage, I was listening to a church in Atlanta in the West End, a place we probably don't have a reason to go because it's historically poor and dangerous and not great, but a man planted a church there, John Anuchequa, and they preached through Titus a couple years ago, and it's a phenomenal series. And on this text, he said, pastors should not run toward a fight, but they also should not run from a fight. Church leaders have a responsibility to protect their flocks, false teaching, and false teachers. But that doesn't mean we should be looking for fights. We shouldn't run toward a fight. But when we see something that needs to be confronted, we also shouldn't run away from it and cower and, and, and let our church be exposed to something that's gonna compromise the good work of the gospel in your heart. And the best illustration I can think of is Al has told me this a million times. But you start where you are and you're running after God. You're running after the vision God's given to you. Don't, if this is the path, don't run over to the side to confront something over here. That's not, you're not going that direction. You're going this direction. Keep running and if this thing eventually moves over in your path, then confront it with you get there. But don't waste time confronting these things over to the side. That's exactly what I thought of when I heard Jono's quote on Titus. I'm not gonna run over here and pick a fight if I'm going that way. I'm gonna run after God. I'm gonna keep my eyes set on God. Now, if you get in the way of our church and God, we'll, we'll do some sharp rebuking and I'm gonna pray that the Holy Spirit restores your heart to rejoice in the reality of who Jesus is without adding anything else to it. But that doesn't mean we should go looking for a fight and run off course just so we can have some conflict. We're not looking for conflict. We're looking for God, and we'll have conflict with anything that gets in the way of us and God. That's healthy conflict. Let's run after God together. The last point this morning been talking about what does it mean to be healthy, combating unhealth. But I feel like we've got to talk about staying healthy is a daily discipline that's done over a long period of time. And that's also what it means to be unhealthy. You don't get unhealthy in a day. You get unhealthy in like thousands of days. And you don't get healthy in a day. You get healthy over thousands of days, over many years. What does that look like for us spiritually? Well, we must regularly, remember, let's go back to verse nine. What is it that makes us healthy? We must regularly tell ourselves the true gospel story. We say this in our house all the time. We've gotta tell the truth to ourselves. We gotta tell the truth to each other, but we gotta tell the truth to ourselves. We've gotta trace the fruit of our life, the sin, the anxiety, the shame, the guilt, the relational strife, look at that fruit. Look at how bad you're sleeping. Look at how overwhelmed you feel. Look at how guilty you feel if you don't do everything you think you need to do and trace that fruit to the root of your heart and ask, what do I believe about my life right now? What's the story that I'm telling myself? Because whenever we think about the story of our life, we tend to emphasize some things and de-emphasize other things. Now, we'll pull some things to the front of our story, and we'll, there could be many other things happening, but we're trying to make a meaning of all these things that are happening to us, so we choose, without even thinking about it, to highlight certain things. I, I struggle with anxiety. I really I struggle with anxiety and worry, and it leads to a, a sadness. 
in my life. And I've noticed that the story I tell myself in those moments is I, I lift up to the mountain, the peaks of my story, the bad things, and I push down into the valley of my story and I forget all the good things. So the story I tell myself about my life is, well, I, I'm never gonna get out of this. this. This will end as bad as it could possibly end. I'm not sure if there's any hope out of this. I'm not sure I see God in this. Now, what am I forgetting? I'm forgetting, one, that I'm focusing more on what hasn't happened than on how faithful God's already been my whole life. I'm forgetting to tell myself the truth that God loves me and he cares for me. Now, that's just one example. What story are you telling yourself? Every day, you're telling yourself a story, and it is contributing to your health or your unhealth. What story are you telling yourself? We may tell ourselves a story of individual autonomy and freedom. I can do what I want, when I want. And if that's the story you tell yourself, you will live a life of miserable sin. Jumping from one thing to another, never being satisfied. Augustine, who we talked about earlier, lived 1,600 years ago. He said, Lord, you created us for yourself, and our souls are restless until we find our rest in you. You can pursue whatever you want, whenever you want. Have at it, and you will be restless because you will never settle down into a relationship with the one you were created for. Are you telling yourself a story of total freedom and autonomy to excuse sin in your life? Times of suffering or depression, we may only emphasize the bad things. Anxiety and worry, we may emphasize the things that are out of our control and the ways that we're alone and helpless and we ignore the promises of God. What's the story you're telling yourself about your purpose, about what you live for? Like we tell ourselves something about, our, about us. We talk to ourselves about ourselves. And you are telling yourself something every single day about why you're on this earth. And that contributes to whether you think you had a good day or a bad day. What, what's your, tomorrow when you wake up, what will be your purpose? What story are you gonna tell yourself? Your identity, you're telling yourself a story about who you are and what makes you that person. What are you saying? I've got to keep performing. I need everyone to view me as competent. I need to be needed. And I need to not be needy. I want people to see me as sufficient. What story are you telling yourself about your hope? Will things ever get better in the story you tell yourself? What about the story of your rights? Things that you're owed by others and by this world? What about relationships? Do you think you're alone? Does anyone care in the story you tell yourself? Does anybody care about you? Or does everybody care about you? And maybe everybody else is just background actors to your lead role. What about suffering? What's the story you tell yourself about suffering? Is it all coincidental with no sovereign author who's working all things together for the good of those who love him? We must tell the truth to ourselves. We must tell ourselves the story of the gospel every day. And the gospel says that you have an identity that cannot be lost no matter how bad your circumstances are. We have a gospel. Jesus has given us an identity. He's given us a purpose. That purpose is to glorify, to point to another. The spotlight doesn't have to end on us anymore. The pressure's off. You don't have to be perfect. You can fall into the arms of the one who is. 
You don't have to keep searching for the thing that's gonna fulfill you. Idolizing on a pedestal, everything you do, everything you want, where your wants turn into needs and you idolize it and then you crush it because it doesn't satisfy you. It doesn't give you the rest you wanted. It doesn't give you the joy you wanted for the amount of time you wanted it. You don't have to keep looking. You have one that will never be crushed under the weight of your worship and his name is Jesus. The gospel tells us a story that lasts far beyond the grave like we've sang about this morning. So no matter how bad things get, they're gonna get better. You're gonna get through this. What story do you tell yourself? What story do we tell ourselves as a church? One way to tell yourself the true gospel story is to show up here. Maybe I ought to talk to the live stream. Show up here if you can. Show up. Come. Don't come because you feel like it. Come because you don't. Church, this is not a feel like it kind of thing. You don't come because you've got it together. The reason you come for church may be a metaphor for how you believe the gospel. You don't clean up and come to Jesus, and you don't clean up and come to church. You come to church because you say, I'm struggling to believe. I've had a really hard week. I'm ashamed of how much I've I dove headfirst into sin that I've repented of a million times, and I just feel bad. I feel gross. I feel guilty. I really need to go to church today. Not, man, I, need to, I just need to stay home. I don't need to be going to church. Um, my mind's, let me say this, my mind's not in the right place today. That's exactly the right place. Come on to Shaliford. You know, my heart's just really distracted. Perfect. Come. Because that means you're in the place where you need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. I left last week. I came last week. I was so, I don't know why, sad. I was unexplainably sad last week. I don't know why. Maybe you got a text from me saying that. I was just sad. And I left with so much joy in my heart. Because I got to hear you sing. You reminded me that you still believe this. That's a, remind, that's a gospel reminder. That's how we do our, we don't just pursue health once a year, go to the doctor. Well, let me go to Christmas. Let me go to Easter. Let me throw some money at this thing, right? Giving money to the church and thinking that's your spiritual health is like paying for insurance you never use. That's, I think that's a pretty good illustration. I mean, I'm glad I came this morning now. <laughs> that's pretty good. It's like paying for insurance you never use. You're, you're giving money here, but you're never getting the benefits of gathering with God's people, singing, praying, hearing God's word, talking to Jesus yourself, feeling his grace come into your heart, taking, like we will this morning, the Lord's table. How do we pursue health? We gotta have a steady diet, not only of God's word, but of Jesus Christ himself. So this morning, we're gonna take the Lord's table, and you are invited I'm not offering the meal. Jesus is. He laid his life down, and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. I'm making a new covenant between mankind and God, and I am the way, and I am doing all the work. You just receive it by faith. So as you take this this morning, we are remembering, but this is a tangible, visible reminder of a very, very real reality in your heart that Christ's blood was shed for you and his body was broken for you. And if you know him today, Christ is in you. 
And so when we take the Lord's table, we take it from a place of faith. Not faith in how good you've been this week, but faith in how good Christ is in spite of you this week. So as Jay and Nathan are going to come back up and we're going to get ready to sing one more song, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and let's come before our Lord. The Bible talks about taking the Lord's table and examining yourself. So I'd invite you to do that this morning. Don't examine yourself and talk yourself out of coming and taking this thing. But when you examine yourself, you're finding those places in your heart that shine a spotlight on your need for Christ. You're not finding excuses to not celebrate the Lord's table, and you're not trying intentionally not to think of certain problems you have or sins that you're trying to avoid thinking about. You're bringing everything up to the surface to say, Jesus, these are all the reasons I need you today, and I'm turning these over to you because I know your grace is enough. I know your sacrifice was perfect. So if you know Jesus this morning, this table is for you to come and take and celebrate the work of Christ. Father, we are glad that you chose to save us into a family so that we can walk through life together. Thank you for Jesus and his perfect work on our behalf. I pray that you would protect our church, God, from ways we're gonna be tempted to add to the gospel or take away from the gospel. Give us a heart to love your word. I pray we'd be a people of the Bible. I pray that we love scripture, God. And our love for scripture would lead us to be healthy followers of Jesus. So Jesus, you are everything this morning. It's in your name we pray.